Aren't you glad for his amazing grace? Because of that, we get to celebrate ultimate freedom that can't be taken away. We're going to go ahead and read the text for today. It's Mark 10, verses 32 through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. You may be seated. Thank you, Seth, for the worship, and thank you for reading that text to us. And church, if you don't mind, would you bow with me as we prepare to hear the Word of God? Let's pray. Father, we need and we want your help to listen rightly. Lord, we need and want your help to have our eyes open, our ears open, and for some of us, maybe for the first time, have our hearts opened by you, just like you did for Lydia that day at the preaching of Paul. It says that you opened her heart to believe the words that he was preaching. Lord, some of us have not had that yet or been saved yet, so please save sinners. Lord, for those of us who do know you, please build up your church, and I pray that you would continue to do it through the power of the word of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would please guard my mouth this morning from saying, thing, from saying anything wrong. Help me to present your truth faithfully by the power of your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Mark 10, 32 through 34. If you're not turned there, go ahead and turn there. If you're not there on your device, turn there on your device and let's look at this. But before we get into it, having just finished teaching the disciples about obediently following the Lord, even when it means leaving earthly relationships, even when it means leaving earthly possessions, Jesus now predicts for the third time in this book that he'll be laying down his life and rising again from the dead. Though confused about much of what Jesus says up to this point, um, the disciples really only need to trust him and obediently follow him. And that's the same for us as well. If you're a non-believer this morning, if you haven't come to know Jesus yet, number one, you're, you're welcome here. We, we want you here listening and Believing we were once not in the kingdom either. We pray that you will see how precious Jesus is. But non-believers can be confused about who Jesus is and about his words sometimes. And, of course, your part is to trust him and obediently follow him. And for believers... We can be confused as well sometimes, not about who Jesus is or about the truth of his word, but we can be confused sometimes about where he has us in our walk with him and why. And guess what our part is? Also to trust him and obediently follow him. So I've titled the message this morning, Prediction and Preparation, because 
Like I said, it was the third prediction of Jesus Christ, of his death, burial, and resurrection. And this is also for the purpose of preparing his disciples and then in turn preparing us for the life that Jesus has for us post-resurrection. Let's go ahead and jump right into the text because there's a lot here, though it's only three verses. Look at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, it says, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. So notice where they are. They're on the road because Jesus is on mission. He's always, always seeking to fulfill the will of the Father. He's always seeking to obediently do what the Father commands him to do. What a great example for us. He's dedicated. He's determined. He's not reluctant in this. Though he knows where he's going and why he's going there and what will happen when he gets there, he's not reluctant at all. He is resolute. Now, look at our Lord Jesus in this verse. Look at him. He is the perfect servant leader. Every step he takes closer to Jerusalem, he knows is a step in obedience that will ultimately lead to his suffering and to his resurrection. It's another step closer to serving his people by dying in their place. It's another step as a leader also to be admired by his followers because of his courage and because of his love for his disciples. So he's on the road, going up to Jerusalem, walking ahead of them as their great servant leader. Also, it says next in verse 32, and they were amazed. They were amazed. Their amazement was not just for who he was, which is amazing enough, but also likely because of all the things Jesus has been saying in this chapter up to this point. Quick recap, very quick, concerning divorce. He said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this command. How bold to say that to the religious leaders of his day. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this command. Next, concerning faith. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. How different from anything they'd ever heard to that point about faith and receiving the kingdom like a child? Concerning the rich, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How shocking. How shocking because they, just like we at that time, just like we at this time, believe and think and are fed, pursue wealth hard and everything will be fine. Get wealth and you will be happy. It was like that for this. It's always been like that really for mankind. So they were shocked by this. It's hard for rich people to get into the kingdom. That's why Peter said, who then can be saved? Concerning judgment in this chapter, Jesus has said, many who are first will be last and the last first. And that's amazing too because it's comforting. So they were amazed at Jesus, which is a normal response for those who are both 
beginning to understand who Jesus is and for those who already know who Jesus is. Both of those types of people are amazed at Jesus. If you are a Christian in in here, you didn't stop being amazed at Jesus after you got saved. If anything, you're more amazed at all that you learned by him. Those who don't know Jesus yet even are amazed by him. And we see this amazement all throughout the Gospels. Remember when he was 12? After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Also at the beginning of his ministry. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, who is this? I mean, I'm sorry, what is this rather? A new teaching and with authority. He even commands evil spirits and they obey him. And of course, his miracles. And the man rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. There's no one like Jesus. He exists in a category all his own. If his claims don't amaze you, you simply haven't examined his words enough yet. If his works don't amaze you, you simply haven't examined his life enough yet. And if his finished work on the cross doesn't amaze you, you simply don't understand the severity of your sin yet. There's plenty to be amazed about when it comes to Jesus. But that wasn't the only emotion present that day. (laughs) Look what it also says in verse 32. And those who followed were afraid. So we have both amazement and fear. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. So there's also fear here that day. But notice so far in verse 32, verse 32 has been using language like this. Language like Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And now we have, and those who followed were afraid And then the very next sentence says, and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them. So like a a detective examining every clue to find out the the whole story that's, that's unknown, sometimes we have to take that role in how we look at the scriptures. We take the role of a detective looking at every detail to try to get the whole picture to see what all's there that day Because just like when you might recount the events of your day to a spouse or to children or whoever, you don't tell every single thing. And it's a good thing because no one would ever ask you again, how was your day? Or tell me about your day. They would just leave that alone. (laughs) But here, we get certain words and they're for certain reasons. And we can find out that I believe there were two crowds that day, two different groups of people that day. There were the 12 And then there was the crowd. And those who followed, I believe the crowd, I believe the text makes a distinction here between them. Those following behind, those not close to Jesus yet, uh, were afraid. Possibly 
because they were influenced by the idea that was popular that day about the Messiah being this mighty political leader. They could have feared because they could have thought, we're following him and we might just be about ready to go to war because if he's this political Messiah that we've been hearing about, it's about to get real. Or it could be the fact that Jesus was going to Jerusalem, the center of Jewish religious life. And there were people there, there were religious leaders there that had the power to arrest you and make life really bad for you if they thought you were doing anything contrary to the word of God, if they thought that you were going against them in any way. And Jesus was going against them in many ways. Maybe that was the source of the fear. Or this fear could simply have been from the fact that Jesus was leading and they didn't know where they were going and why they were going there yet and what all was going to happen. It could have just been fear of the unknown in following Jesus. And that's really a natural feeling that we get sometimes in following Jesus for any of us, isn't it? We don't know exactly where the path of Jesus might lead us, both now and 10 years from now. And for things I've learned, because Amy and I were talking yesterday, and we were talking about the future, and I basically said, you know, I don't even have a clue where we might be in 10 years. I don't have any idea. If anything, if I've learned anything from the last eight years coming back to the States off the mission field, kind of having to start over with life again, is I've learned that things can change really quickly. You lose a job, have to move somewhere else for your next job, making less, maybe making more, maybe then losing that job. You just don't know. We, we just don't know. When I came back to the States, I thought I was going to have a job in this ministry, and that fell, fell through, not because of any moral failure or anything, just because the, the ministry couldn't exist like we all thought it was going to exist, and so then I had to get a job at Lowe's, and then we moved back to Alabama, and then I got a job as a, a pastor of a church part-time, and then lawn maintenance and landscaping part-time, where I had my own business doing that. Well, then this church had to close down just because the funds weren't there, and then a drought happened and ruin my business. And so I'm like, well, now what do I do? Sold cars for a few years, got out of that. Sold books at Lifeway for a little while. Worked at Harley Davidson for a little while. Then now I'm pastoring this church. And we've moved multiple times. And so I'll, you know what I've learned? You don't know where the path of Jesus might lead you. You don't know what's going to happen. And I say the path of Jesus because some of those moves were in my, they were acts of obedience because of just what I thought was right and good for following Jesus at that time. So you don't know, do you? You don't know what might change in 10 years. And that can cause a little bit of intrepidation and fear and uncertainty, right? And so they were following him and they were afraid, it says. And you and I feel that as well sometimes. Do you want to know the cure for that? You want to know the cure for no fear 
or much, much, much less fear? There's an old hymn called Trust and Obey. Let me sing the, no, <laughs> not sing. <laughs> Let me read the second and third stanza to you. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sigh or a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil he doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Happiness and joy are the opposite of fear. This is the only way to follow your Lord with full trust and intentional obedience. Listen, we must follow Jesus with full trust and intentional obedience. That's the only way to follow him. And that's the only way to have no fear in following him. Do I know where I'm going to be in 10 years? I do not know. I hope it's still here as your pastor at Christ Fellowship. I don't want to leave. <laughs> I like it here. I hope the Lord still has us here in 10 years because I love you all and I want to be in this position serving you all in this way. But I'm not afraid of where I'll be in 10 years if I'm with Jesus. Some missionary friends of ours, wonderful, wonderfully wise people. We just love them so much. David and Glennis Miller. They once told us, if you're walking in obedience, walking to fulfill God's will, if you're, if you're living your life in daily obedience to the Lord, you're in the center of his will. And it doesn't matter where you are. And they were a couple that were um, carjacked once and held, held in their car for a little bit at gunpoint. And, and while they were getting their car stolen and then told to walk down an alley with their backs to the perpetrators, not knowing, are they, gonna let, are, are they letting us go or are they rubbing us out? And they're the ones who told us that after the fact. If you're walking in obedience to the word of God, you're in the center of his will, no matter what happens. So at this point, the Lord purposefully divulges future knowledge, future happenings to his disciples. He chooses to make known to them things to come in the future that haven't happened yet. He predicts now for the third time his death, his burial, and resurrection. And he's doing this because he loves them. He's doing this because he wants them to know this truth and he wants them to be prepared for this truth. He's making known to them his plans because he cares for them. This actually reminds me of um, Genesis 18 where the Lord made his plans known to Abraham. Listen to what he said, Genesis 18, 17, and 18. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. The Lord called Abraham. The Lord knew Abraham. He made known 
his plans to Abraham because God's blessings would flow. They would, let me word it this way. More of God's people would come through Abraham and then also God's blessing would flow through Abraham to those people. Also reminds me of Psalm 25, 14. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes known his covenant to them. You know what it means to confide in someone? It means you're telling them special information that you don't tell other people. Like if someone says, listen, I'm going to confide in you with this, and they tell you something, does that mean they've told everybody else on planet Earth? Usually not. Usually it means I'm telling you something that I'm not telling everybody else. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. Jesus confides in and tells the future to the 12. Similar to Abraham. Other God followers will come through these men. And like Abraham, the blessing of God would come to others because of these men, because of the 12. Kind of like God worked through Abraham. God's going to work through these 12, but in a spiritual way. And he says to them, look at verses 33 and 34 now. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. And after three days, he'll rise. I mentioned this was the third prediction of Jesus. Let's look at the first prediction and the second prediction of Jesus. What exactly has he already said to them? Now, you'll see in the portions that I've made bold and the portions that are bold and underlined, these are things that are unique to each prediction, okay? The bold underlined portions are the things that are unique to each prediction. So it's interesting because the first prediction was in Mark 8.31. The second prediction was in Mark 9.31. It just happened to be that way. So look what he says. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after the three days rise again. That's the first one. The second one, 931, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they'll kill him. When he's killed after three days, he'll rise. So we see suffering many things in the first one, rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, also in the first one, and then the second one, what's unique to it, delivered into the hands of men. We know that he... So when something's delivered over, it's given. We know that this was because of Judas betraying him. He was delivered over. Now, let's look at the third prediction, our prediction that we're looking at right now in today's text. What's unique about it? Again, I made everything bold in it that's unique to it. And what you'll see is there's a lot of bold in this one, isn't there? There's a lot more because this one is even more unique. We get a lot more information here with this third one. First of all, we're seeing that this is all going down in Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be, now we've already learned that he's going to be delivered over, but now we see to whom? Delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And that's what happened in the garden that evening. Yes, there were Romans there with him as well. But there were those religious leaders. They had their own guards because there were 
military men of the Jewish people that were responsible for making sure everything stayed safe, like at the temple and such. They were there, and then also some of the Romans were there, yes. But in the garden that day, he was delivered over to the Jewish authorities because they're the ones who went to Judas and said, we'll pay you this if you'll give him over to us. Then we know after he left the garden, it says right here, they will condemn him to death. When Jesus left the garden that day, went with them, he went to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, if you don't know, that's like the Jewish court. If you're going to go to court, that's like the Jewish court. They tried him. They made, it, made, it was made clear that he was not backing down from his claim to be the son of God, which meant that he's equal with God. They said, we can't have that. He's worthy of death. But living under Roman rule, the Jews weren't allowed to put anybody to death. The Romans wouldn't let the Jews just carry out their own civil punishments. They wouldn't let them just kill people. They said, no, if there's going to be any killing going down, we're going to do it. Not you. You let us know who needs to be killed, and then we'll decide from there. That's why it says, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. That's the Romans, which is exactly what happened. Now we also get this too, a lot more detail about what's going to happen prior to him being killed. Verse 34, they will mock him and spit on him and flog him. We didn't get that in the others. And kill him, and after the three days he will rise. So this third and last prediction is more detailed than the other two. It's also been, it also uses similar language to some prophecies that were made about Jesus. Listen to Psalm 22, verses 1 through 8. Listen to this, Psalm 22, 1 through 8. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. Now look at verse 6. But I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Verse 7. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. So interesting that so much of this. I mean, what did Jesus cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's verse 1. And he talks about them mocking him, hurling insults at him. He trusts in others, let the Lord rescue them. That's what they said at the foot of the cross. He saved others, let him save himself. They said that. So much of this that Jesus was referring to was already prophesied about him hundreds of years before. These Psalms, if I'm not mistaken, were actually closer to a thousand years before he was crucified. And we know all this wasn't just the Jews hating Jesus and the Romans crucifying yet another Jewish man. Because crucifixion was, was not uncommon. Jesus Christ wasn't the only person crucified on planet Earth. A lot of people have been crucified. 
But Jesus Christ was the only one when crucified to be absorbing the wrath of Almighty God for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. That was unique. This event was the event in human history that was like nothing else that has ever happened ever, nor will anything like this ever happen again. It was so unique, individual, and exclusive to Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God, sinless, perfect, fully God, fully man. He drank the cup of the wrath of God down to the bitter, bitter final drops. Listen to Isaiah 53, 3 through 10. And Jesus predicting this, he's also fulfilling these things when it happens. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by who? God, it says, smitten by God. The cross wasn't just about, oh, those bad Romans and oh, those angry Jews. This was God's doing. God was doing this. And behind the scenes, in the spiritual realm, there was so much more happening that day. If you were there that day looking, you would have seen Jesus being crucified and two other men on either side. And on the outside, it would have looked the same. All three are bleeding. All three are gasping for air. Now, Jesus would have had a crown of thorns and Jesus would have been scourged. The other two men, perhaps not. But behind all that, there's something we can't even comprehend. I can try to put words to it. They would fall so short. I don't even have the words to put to it. God the Father punishing God the Son for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. There was something happening there in those hours that was equal to an eternity of hell for every single sin. I don't understand that. Do you understand that? Do you know, how can one man in a matter of hours drain the cup of God's wrath that would have taken an eternity to pour out on you and me? How can that be? Smitten by God and afflicted, verse 5 of Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked. He was crucified with Two criminals. And with a rich man in his death, Joseph of Arimathea, 
A rich man who owned that tomb that no one had ever laid in, ever. That's very expensive. Although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. And then verse 10. So powerful. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Let me end with this. Because Jesus loves all who the Father gave him, he died in their place to purchase their pardon. And because Jesus loves his disciples, he's preparing them for what's to come Not only concerning himself, because yes, that's specifically what he's talking about. His death and burial and resurrection. But he's also preparing them for what's to come concerning their lives and what they can expect from people who hate the truth and people who hate God. Which we'll look more into next week because that's going to be one of the topics that we are looking more at next week. So, in conclusion, remember, yes, Jesus went there. Jesus purchased everything. Jesus procured everything that's needed for the salvation of everyone who will ever believe. He did that. Thank the Lord he did that. He rose again and he's living. And he did that to purchase the people. And in purchasing those people, they would one day then go out and reproduce that truth more and more. And that's actually why we're sitting in this building today, because guess what? This message of Christianity, he's saying, this all happened in Jerusalem. It's not very close to Alabama, is it? This truth has traveled and multiplied and gone on. And we are to keep it moving on. That's why he was preparing them for this truth as well, because they had a work to do after he rose and ascended and then sent them the Holy Spirit on that day of Pentecost and they continued to spread it. That was part of this preparation process. So let's be about that work as well. But remember, it's not going to happen without fully trusting and being truly obedient to our Lord Jesus Christ. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the fact that you sent your son Jesus to do everything that's needed for man to be saved. And I pray, Lord, of course, that you would now please help us by the power of your spirit to live a life pleasing to him and to be the light of Jesus here on this earth, in this dark world. Lord, we thank you for the freedoms that are afforded to us in this country. And we ask that you would please help us to take full advantage of those freedoms. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.